0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: The New Statesman.
2: I'm Jeremy Cliff, writer at large in Berlin.
3: I'm Emily Tampkin, senior editor, U.S. in Washington, D.C. And I'm Katie
1: Stallard, senior editor, China and Global Affairs, also in Washington, D.C. It is Thursday, the 1st
3: of December. You're listening to World Review from The New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs.
2: Step down, Xi Jinping, step down.
3: Protesters are taking to the streets in the face of COVID restrictions in China. China.
1: Step down, Xi Jinping, step down. Why now, and how will the government respond?
3: French
2: President Emmanuel Macron is on a state visit to America. We discuss that, as well as my recent cover piece on how he became a hyperactive player on the world stage. It's also, perhaps, a way of finding another form of cooperation with countries like the UK, which decided to leave our European Union, but which could have its place in this political community.
3: We also take a listener question on a recent shooting and homophobic political speech and legislation in the United States. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Okay, Katie, Jeremy, we're back. Back at it. We have so much to get through. Let's get into it. Protesters in China frustrated by continued strict COVID lockdown restrictions are taking to the streets. The country has pursued a zero COVID policy for almost three years and building frustrations are out in the open. But why now and how could we expect the government to respond? Uh, Katie, you have a piece on this that we will put in the show notes to this piece. But to start out, we can just put those questions to you. First, China has pursued these policies for years now. Why is this? why, Why now?
1: The underlying frustration and the anger that has driven these protests has been building for months. Listeners may remember, for instance, back in April, we covered the the protests in Shanghai, which was then under a two-month lockdown when people were opening their windows and, and yelling into the night sky that they were running out of food, that they were fed up of being locked down. And in recent weeks, we've seen a series of events lead up to this. The first was in October, in the days right before the Communist Party's 20th Congress in Beijing. So this huge ceremonial occasion when the capital is normally very heavily locked down, when Xi was on the brink of embarking on his third term in power We saw this lone protest on a road bridge in Beijing where a man unfurled a banner, which was against the COVID lockdown measures, but also saying things like, we don't want lockdowns, we want freedom. We want to be citizens. We don't want to go back to the cultural revolution. That protest that the physical traces of it were very quickly shut down and references to it online were censored. But it had already been very widely shared. And we have since seen some of the slogans from that protest re-emerge in subsequent protests and in the current protests that we're seeing now. So then there were a couple of events last week, which are important to understand. The first might seem rather trivial, but was the broadcast of, of the World Cup matches in China. The state broadcaster CCTV has really, since the start of the pandemic in early 2020, been really pushing this message to Chinese viewers that China's approach to the pandemic is far superior, like its political system, that its zero COVID policy is tough, but it is working, it is keeping people safe, and it is much more successful than the approaches that other countries, particularly in the West, have adopted. But what people saw, and football is very popular in China, what people saw when they turned on their televisions to watch the World Cup in Qatar was suddenly these stadiums full of cheering people not wearing masks and life appearing to go on as normal. So there was an open letter published on WeChat, which is a very popular social media platform in in China, asking, is this happening on the same planet as us? How are these people more free than Chinese people? Which again was censored, but had already been widely shared. And then the final trigger that we saw was last week on Thursday, the 24th of November, a terrible fire at a high-rise block of flats in Urumqi, which is the capital of the Xinjiang region in western China, in which at least 10 people died, although there are reports that it may well be significantly more people. And the way that fire was covered on Chinese social media particularly was with really widespread questions about whether the people in that building had been prevented from escaping because of these lockdown measures. It had become quite common um, when buildings were under lockdown and the entire city of Urumqi had been under lockdown for more than 100 days. When lockdown measures go into effect, often there are physical barriers built around the entrances to these compounds. So there were real questions about whether people could get out and also questions about whether the firefighters could get close enough. One video, which again was very widely shared, showed this great plume of water from one of the fire trucks arcing up into the night sky and stopping meters short of the burning building. The local authorities say this is not what happened, that they were obstructed by parked cars. But the way people across the country understood what was happening, particularly, well, really until... Those posts were shut down. Was that this was people trapped in a fire as a direct result of these pandemic control measures? So we saw the first protest start in Urumqi itself on the Friday night, and then in Shanghai, China's financial center, on the Saturday, and then in in cities and particularly on university campuses across China. And for a lot of these protests, the initial gathering was about remembering the victims of the fire. But what we saw quite quickly happening was this then turn into complaints about the COVID policy itself, and then very unusually complaints about the national level policy and even the top leadership. So we saw chants in Shanghai of down with Xi Jinping, down with the Chinese Communist Party, which is very, very unusual in China.
3: Two other questions for you on this, Katie. The first is, I mean, you've mentioned a couple incidents in which censorship hasn't been enough or it's bit for the government it's been it's come too late it was too widespread for censorship to keep people from seeing the the open letter or from seeing video how has the government been responding and how do you expect it to continue to to act
1: so it's important to say firstly that local level protests are very very common in china any day of the week you can find a small scale protest happening in, in a city somewhere but usually how these protests go is that they're targeted against local officials or they're in response to a specific grievance like unpaid wages like environmental pollution and normally the protesters are framing those calls in terms of appealing to the central government for help so that the sort of the message is you know if, if only we can get the attention of the central government We can get this problem solved and frequently that works. The difficulty for the authorities this time is that they are directly responsible for the policy that everyone is complaining about, these lockdown measures that people have been living under for almost three years at this point. And so is Xi Jinping. He has really made strenuous efforts to to position himself as, as the lead defender of this policy. He is the one. That you see telling officials that they need to implement the policies more rigorously, that persistence is victory. So the difficulty for the authorities here is tackling these protests without addressing the underlying cause. So in the short term, what we're seeing are, are large numbers of police on the streets. Anywhere that's being identified as a possible protest site is now lined with police vans. People who attended the protests this past weekend are reporting that they're getting calls from a private number on their mobile phone. Um, they will get a call from their local police station asking what they were doing at the weekend and making it clear that, that they have been identified and warning them against future protests. And anyone that they can identify as a, as a ringleader will be detained, um, will be dealt with very harshly. But the problem is that they are kind of in a trap of their own making, where, you know, I think we will see efforts to to appear to be easing somewhat these policies. We we already saw that earlier in the month. They talked about optimizing um, the zero COVID policy. But because China has had so few infections, there is a very low level of natural immunity in the population. There is still close to a third of the elderly population does not have the third. Dose of the vaccine that they would need to protect themselves. China also hasn't approved foreign mRNA vaccines for use. So, with those conditions and with China's really still quite rudimentary public health care system, if they were to suddenly pivot away from this policy as the protests are demanding, there could really be a, a wide scale public health catastrophe. But if they don't, then we're going to continue to see people are really suffering under these conditions. The economy is absolutely stalling and, th- and there appears to be no end in sight. So I think they can make it very difficult for people to physically congregate in the short term, but it's much harder to see how they tackle the underlying grievances. Before
3: we started recording, you mentioned that there is another event in China that at, perhaps at first glance doesn't seem like it's related to this, but in fact is. And I wanted to make sure that you had a chance to mention that.
1: Yeah, so I think the the real question after this really extraordinary weekend of protests that we saw last weekend was whether they could be sustained, whether people will come out again in spite of the extraordinary measures that are now being put in place to, to stop them. And I remember thinking yesterday, and I'm sorry now that I didn't, I didn't tweet it, was I bet the leadership is hoping that Jiang Zemin doesn't die right now. So Jiang Zemin was, was general secretary beginning in 1989, immediately after the Tiananmen protests. And he is the second but one leader um, before Xi Jinping. He, is, is, or he He was 96. He was known to be in, in fairly poor health. And and there had been repeated rumors of of his death. When we got the news this morning that he has died in Shanghai from multiple organ failure and leukemia, uh, my first thought, and I think a number of other people who cover China's first thought was this could be a really serious problem for the Chinese Communist Party. What we have seen in the past when senior leaders have died, for instance, Zhou Enlai, who was the premier under Mao Zedong, when when he died in 1976, people came out nominally to mourn him, but also to vent their frustrations with the system. So we saw these you know, now quite often forgotten, but quite large protests in Tiananmen Square in the spring of 1976. And then in the spring of 1989, as is better known, Hu Yao Bang, who was a, a previous reform-minded general secretary, died. Again, people came out nominally to mourn him. They put up a banner with his portrait on the monument to the people's heroes in Tiananmen Square. But that was the spark for this much wider protest movement that then evolved into what we now remember as the Tiananmen protests, which was really venting all those much broader grievances about inflation, unemployment, inequality, unfairness, and which then evolved into the the pro-democracy movement that we remember now. So There is a real danger for the Communist Party in their handling of Jiang's death that they are seen to afford him sufficient respect without giving people too much of an ability to organize, to get together, and then to once again give give vent to these underlying frustrations.
2: Just one very final question, Katie. Do you see um, Xi Jinping shaping his foreign policy around this domestic turmoil? I mean, could this see him move to seize Taiwan's more swiftly than he might otherwise have done in order to clamp down at home?
1: I would be surprised if that if this shapes his thinking in that way. I think how this could play into his thinking is as as we're already seeing some of the official response to this protest is to frame this as being caused by foreign forces. there's been talk about ulterior motives and, and and what we saw happen with the protest movement in Hong Kong was this this was very quickly framed as something that you know the US and all these nefarious Western powers were orchestrating this couldn't be the Chinese people. this must be the black hand of foreign imperialism. I think we will see efforts if this protest movement continues to frame it in that way as something that is being fomented, from abroad as potentially a color revolution and something that that she and Putin both believe to be a, a, a great threat to their own regimes. And he, I think how this could play into that decision is if she believes that this is genuinely the case, that foreign forces are interfering in China and trying to stoke disorder on the mainland and trying to threaten his rule. That could make him much more determined not to show any weakness abroad. And that could really further damage relations with the US, which we saw very slightly start to thaw at the G20 summit in Bali. If he believes and if people around him believe that this is partly being fomented from abroad, I think that could really put the kibosh on any thaw in US-China relations. And that's how this could be particularly significant. For foreign policy, but certainly this will also contribute to the idea which he has had from his earliest days in office, that he's almost kind of ruling under siege, that he needs to take there there is there are threats all around and he Mm -hmm. needs to take a very firm grip of China and get a firm grip on its external environment. So this is only going to further strengthen that approach.
3: Well, we will leave that there. We will put Katie's piece in the show notes. We're going to continue talking about foreign policy, but pivot slightly as we move to, yes, Franco American relations. Okay, here we go. French President Emmanuel Macron is being hosted by the White House on his state visit to the U.S., where he and U.S. President Joe Biden will reaffirm Franco American ties, and Macron is expected to promote nuclear energy. But the heart of the agenda will surely be Ukraine and Russia's war in Ukraine, and how to keep transatlantic ties tight as pressure grows. Jeremy, what are they hoping to get out of this visit? That was my little my little recap. When you look at this visit, what do you think will be on the agenda? What do you think matters? What is the significance of this Macron Biden tete a tete, little French for you listeners?
2: Indeed, it's a significant moment. This is the first state visit that Joe Biden has hosted as president, which is obviously a mark of respect to Macron, but there will also be thorny issues to tackle at the summit table. Macron is not happy about the elements of Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, which effectively amount to forms of protectionism, subsidizing American industry. and The feeling is that this is undermining European players, so Macron will want to discuss that. There's also some unhappiness in Europe about the prices that America is charging for its energy exports, on which Europe is now, of course, much more reliant. So there are those. Also, discussions about the future of Ukraine, as, as you said in your, in your introduction, Emily, There is a sense, certainly here in Berlin, that the US is moving to put more sort of subtle pressure on Kiev to move towards some sort of negotiation, or at least to start scoping out the shape of of possible negotiation with Putin. And obviously, that's a topic of great shared interest between Biden and Macron. And I think there'll also be um, discussions about what happens next in terms of both military support to Ukraine, but also the funding of the reconstruction after any conflict. I mean, obviously one doesn't want to speak soon, but when it comes to that point, the cost will be enormous. I mean, the the estimates are around sort of 600, 700 billion euros. So that will also be a, a big topic of discussion. There is also Macron's bid to involve Xi Jinping in brokering some sort of peace in Ukraine, which is something Biden is much less keen on. But I think just to, to sum up, I mean, taken as a whole, this trip sort of does show some of the contours of us uh, eu relations in this day and age the, the question of this these protectionist practices the energy prices who plays what role in any ukraine talks sort of points the way in terms of where the us sees the european role over the coming years and even decades if we are in a time of of us china contest. What exactly does a, a democratic administration in Washington want from Europe? Where does it want Europe to step up? What sort of stake does it consider itself as having in Europe? And as I said, this is a big moment for Macron. He is being effectively treated as the first among equals among Biden's European partners by receiving this honor. And so I think it will be it will be a, a moment that will tell us something about the future of that relationship for, for quite a while to come.
3: I'm going to come back to the China, France, slash Europe U.S. triangle mm. uh, and and pose a question to Katie, but I first want to speak about your your feature that we mentioned. So it's under the headline, great great headline, Emmanuel Macron, the man who would be king. I guess if you could speak a bit about why uh, you framed it that way and and mm. why why now.
2: I wanted to write about Macron's foreign policy because he was reelected earlier this year. That means he will be president until twenty twenty seven. We don't know who will be US President or German Chancellor or British Prime Minister well into the second half of the decade, but we know that Macron will be there. He is a big figure on the world stage. He is the preeminent leader in the EU now that Merkel has gone. And he is someone who thinks very deeply and is very ambitious about his foreign policies. And I think. That combined with the fact that he has lost his domestic legislative majority means that his room for further reform at home is limited. He's currently having to force through legislation using a a controversial clause of the French constitution. And he's turning even more to the world stage because, you know, a bit like with a, a classic second term American president, I think the sense is that that is where he can now sort of shape his legacy. In the most active possible way, so he is turning to the world stage. He does have big ambitions for that second term, and in the piece, I've tried to look back first of all at the foreign policy of his first term and ask what did we learn about Macronism there, what succeeded, what didn't, and then look ahead to those next years and what this really very significant player on the world stage wants to wants to do. And if I just could briefly sketch my sort of understanding of Macronism when it comes to foreign policy, that is what
3: I was going to ask. So good, Ah, I preempted your question. Please do.
2: (laughs) it really rests on two pillars. The first of these is a very traditional French instinct um, to play the role of what is known as a puissance d'équilibre, so a balancing power. That is to say, a power that can intervene in various arenas around the world quite independently. Um, there is this strong sense that France, because it has territories all around the world, because it has this role on the UN Securities Council, because it's a nuclear power, it does have a globe-spanning role that actually gives it a lot of freedom for maneuver and does not see it tied down by any particular alliances or alignments. So that's very that's a kind of classic French foreign policy tradition, and Macron draws quite heavily on it. And some of those who who have influenced his foreign policy thinking, sort of former Mitterrand foreign policy brains like Jean-Pierre Chevènement or Hubert Védrine have sort of guided him in that. But then there is the second pillar, which I've I've gathered under the title of European sovereignty, which is essentially saying. In an increasingly turbulent world, where the U.S. has other priorities, where new powers are rising, where multipolarity is the order of the day, Europe needs to be more autonomous, uh, more uh, integrated, and more able to defend its own interests. Um, and that is the more novel aspect of foreign policy Macronism. Now listeners might notice that there are elements of tension between those two pillars, between the vision of France as a balancing power and that vision of European sovereignty. Macron claims there are not, and he's been asked this, and he says they are utterly complementary. But I do think that his first term illustrates that there are tensions, there are various examples, perhaps most notably and most recently, his attempt to sort of bind Russia into a new European security order, which was something he pursued at his Summit at Versailles with Putin in twenty seventeen again in twenty nineteen when he had Putin come to his summer retreat on the Mediterranean right up to the sort of the final days and weeks before the launch of russia's full scale invasion of Ukraine in February where Macron was trying to play the role of negotiator of broker now that that fits very naturally within the the traditional France as a balancing power, but it's not. You know, it undermined a lot of, sort of solidarity and cohesion within the EU and sowed a lot of suspicion about European defense and foreign policy integration particularly among central and eastern member states so that's just one example of where those two priorities were in, in tension just finally i think the other thing it's important to note is that is that you have those two sort of those two aspects of the macron doctrine as i've called it but it's also worth talking about about his personal characteristics, I mean this is a man with extraordinary self- belief energy ambition whose foreign policy could be described as hyperactive. He has rushed around the world seeking thorny issues into which to insert himself with greater and lesser degrees of success. It's worth saying, but you have to kind of include that in any description of of his foreign policy because it's it's been an important part of it
3: absolutely now before we move on from this segment, i have as promised slash forewarned. One last question that I will put first to you, Jeremy, and then to you, Katie, which is there is a sense from some here in Washington, and I don't just mean hardcore China hawks, that the the mistakes that many European countries made with respect to Russia, which was, well, we can work with them, we can separate out economics and geopolitics, the very same paradigm is now being repeated with China. And I guess my question for you is, do you think it's a fair comparison? So Jeremy, we'll, we'll start with you.
2: I think it is a fair comparison. Obviously, the relationship is different in in various aspects. There is not the energy dimension with the Chinese relationship. There is, however, a much greater trade and economic dimension. But I do think that major European leaders that were naive about Putin, and here obviously I'm thinking of the French and the Germans in particular, are being naive about China as well. I think that Macron had a meeting with Xi Jinping at the G20 summit in Bali, which he talked about a new strategic partnership between France and China. and He has this idea that he can lean on Xi to in turn lean on Putin to come to the table and do a peace deal. I think that is wrong because it underestimates the extent to which Xi has his own interests in all of this and that China has its own attitudes towards Russia and to the war. The fact, for example, that Xi publicly effectively, urged Putin not to use nuclear weapons was not, I think, quite the great European achievement that it was written up as in in Paris and Berlin, but rather she essentially just cleaving to what should be pretty much an uncontroversial position that's consistent with China's other positions and statements on the use of nuclear weapons in world affairs. Uh, and And then when it comes to Berlin, I mean, Olaf Scholz was recently in Beijing. He took a handful of German businessmen. The chancellery claim that this is shorn of the naivety that previously marked aspects of Germany's China policy under Angela Merkel, for example, but it does look remarkably similar to uh, Germany's China policy under Angela Merkel. And The view here in Berlin is very much, no, 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 there is very little to learn from the failures on Putin and apply to the relationship with China. These are completely different things with little bearing on one another. I think that's a mistake, but I think those you speak to in Washington, Emily, who are concerned about this are right to be worried that Europe is making some of the same mistakes again.
3: So, Katie, same question to you. What do you make of this line of thinking in the U.S.? Jeremy seems to think that there is there is indeed some validity in it.
1: Yeah, I think if you are still thinking that you can uh, separate those issues and have a, for instance, an energy relationship with Russia that is independent of Russia's other geopolitical ambitions, um, then that's quite delusional. And I would say. The same with with China. Let, let's let's learn these lessons now. That let's understand that China doesn't separate these issues. China has absolutely no compunction about placing, for instance, against Lithuania about you know using its market access and the extraordinary value that comes with that to advance it, its geopolitical ambitions. So it, when Lithuania allowed Taiwan to to open an office in Vilnius using the word Taiwan in the name of that office, Lithuania suddenly discovered it couldn't export its goods into China. I think I think understanding that these issues are joined, despite wishing it were otherwise, and learning now how difficult it would have been much better had Europe started transition away from Russian energy five years ago, or even perhaps after the annexation of Crimea in 2014, um, we would not perhaps be in the situation that we are in today. So I, I think, you know, no amount of, of magical thinking and wishing it were otherwise changes that reality. And it would be better to to grapple with that rather than, than try to, uh, to to pretend to ourselves that, that these issues can be, can be dealt with discreetly. Right. Well, we will put Jeremy's feature in the show notes.
2: Wherever you are in the world,
3: if you're interested in global affairs,
2: you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just 12 pounds.
3: That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America.
2: Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer.
0: And now save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
2: Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option.
3: And we present Westminster Reimagined on the New Statesman podcast.
2: Each episode, we'll be taking a look at how our politics has got so broken and whether there's anything we can do to fix it.
3: We hear from people shaping our society, from the front line to the corridors of power, alongside campaigners, journalists and satirists, including John Stewart, Ian Hislop, Rosamund adukissi deborah and Catherine Haddon.
2: You can listen to all three series now. Just search the New Statesman podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Or go to newstatesman.com forward slash Westminster Reimagined. And now we are going to move on to a section that we like to call
2: You You Ask ask us. Us.
3: Thanks. Our question this week comes from Matt, and it was a bit of a longer question, so I'm going to paraphrase, but Matt wrote this very thoughtful question and said, Hi, in light of the shooting at an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs on November 19th, can you speak about the actions of right-wing politicians and media outlets that have perhaps fueled hatreds towards and panics around queer and trans people? For example, literally hundreds of bills have been introduced in state legislatures around the U.S. targeting trans youth. Politicians like Lauren Boebert, who as Matt notes as a a congresswoman from Colorado, has repeatedly accused LGBTQ people of being clinical groomers and then put up a thoughts and prayers tweet after the shooting. And Fox News has devoted multiple primetime segments to transgender athletes to name just a few. And then Matt acknowledges correctly that mass shootings are frequent in the US and says this is a long email, but I'm angry and sad and notes that there have been other shootings that have been motivated by hateful extremism. Matt writes, this extremism is becoming, or maybe already has become normalized in the Republican Party, and it seems like almost half of voters don't care or in fact actively approve of it. What does that mean for the US? So I wanna first say, Matt, thank you again for this extremely thoughtful question. There are two parts of the answer that I want to give. The first is that you are absolutely correct to say that this shooting follows months and months of legislation and rhetoric and commentary that demonizes LGBTQ people, and in particular, gender fluid or non-binary and trans people. We see them in in bathroom bills. We see it in legislation saying that people under 18 cannot have access to gender-affirming health care. There's a district in the state of Florida that says that the parents have to be notified if a trans child is on a field trip. I just want to note that off this rhetoric is, is couched in terms of parental rights or children's rights. I want to say that those pushing it are, in fact, refusing to consider parents and children and families that themselves include gay people and trans people what does it do to a gay child to see that drag queens are called groomers what does it do to a child who is vilified for trying to use a restroom that makes them feel safe in school and they're told that that they're doing so is a threat to other people's right to raise their children it's dangerous rhetoric and and what is frustrating to me, and I said this back after the Buffalo shooting, what is frustrating to me is that people have been told again and again that it's dangerous rhetoric and they continue to, to use it. So that's one, is that what you are seeing and saying is real. And while, of course, you know, the shooter's actions were their own and we, we can't say A caused B, yes, this is the environment that we are in now in the United States. And the second part of that, what I think is important to note, is that it is all well and good for Republican politicians to say that this has nothing to do with them or that hate has no place in their party, as Mitch McConnell said just recently after Trump met with Nick Fuentes, who's a 20-something-year-old, like super far-right commentator. But we don't need to ask whether there's a place for it. You know, we can hear it. This week, the Senate voted to codify Federal recognition of same sex marriage and interracial marriage. And it passed. 36 Republicans voted no. That means that in 2022, the majority of Republican senators looked at this and said, no, I don't think that gay marriage and interracial marriage should be protected under the laws of this country. The first step to addressing a problem is to admit that you have a problem. Republican politicians and their voters should do that. But since they will not do that, I believe that the rest of us in media, in society, have an intellectually honest obligation, but also a moral obligation, to say exactly as Matt did in this question, that this is going on. It is not an intellectual debate. These are people's lives, and that is how we should be talking about this. So thank you for the question, Matt. And thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. Listeners, you can send yours in at newstatesman.com slash us, or by tweeting at us.
1: That's all the time we have for today join us on Monday for our interview episode with Jeffrey Wasserstrom on the history of protest movements in China.
3: If you are a regular World Review listener and you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe to this podcast. If you have already subscribed, thank you. Please also rate us five stars and leave us a nice review. It really does help. Our producer's been May Robson. Thank you for listening and until next time.